Before I uh, preach today's word, I'd uh, like to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you that uh, we can come together as a a church in a free country uh, so that we can come to worship you and to uh, learn about your words. And I just pray that the the words that I say today uh, may be useful and may uh, open our eyes and soften our hearts uh, to you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, what are some things in your life that have made you feel sad or depressed? I think it's safe to say that at one point, all of us have felt depressed, anguished, or even wretched about something that we may have done to someone else, something we might have broken, or we failed to do something when we know we should have. For example, ever since starting my new apprenticeship, I've had to sit through video after video of interviews with people who have either seen a colleague get killed at work or they themselves nearly lost their lives all because they didn't sound a warning or follow the safety procedures in the workplace. In each of these videos that I had to watch, every person was either in sorrow about losing their friend or crying in joyful relief because they were still alive. Today, we are going to look at a passage of a letter written by a man named Paul. And as we look at today's passage, you will see Paul as a man who is in despair about his life, but also in joyful relief because he knows how fortunate he is to be alive. So let's start by reading together Romans 7, verse 24. That's on page 1,118 of the uh, Church Bibles. That's Romans 7, verse 24, where Paul writes, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Do you think it's rather surprising that the Bible would have such words written in it? This sounds more like a letter of despair rather than religious instruction. For some strange reason, Paul doesn't sound very confident and happy here, does he? To find out what, why he feels this way, we need to know a little more about Paul's past. So I will read a small snippet about it from one of Paul's letters to the Philippian church. So it's Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Just make a note of this. Um, uh, don't flip, no need to flip over. This is Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6, where Paul writes of himself, If anyone else has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, Faultless. There's something here I don't understand. Paul says he was a religious man. He speaks as though he really was perfect in his religion. He knew all the spiritual things. He had done all the rituals. He had kept all the godly rules. He probably even got to wear a special hat to symbolize just how spiritual he was. This man should be one of the happiest people alive. Surely... God would have accepted him of all people into heaven. Why on earth is this man, Paul, in such unbearable despair? 
To find out what has affected him so much, we need to go a little further back in chapter 7 of Paul's letter to the Romans, to verse 18. So it's Romans 7, verse 18, where Paul writes, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Paul's eyes had finally been opened to a very difficult reality. He knew God, the perfect creator and judge, existed. He knew God's perfect law. And Paul finally realized that his very nature, every thought as well as his deeds, were tainted and could never be perfect as God required him to be, no matter how hard he tried, because of his inherent sinfulness. To paraphrase Paul's words, for every rule of the law Paul had religiously kept, he habitually broke another two with his thoughts and deeds. And it is here that he fully realizes and admits that there's something very, very wrong with him because he physically can't stop breaking God's law. So instead of seeing in this letter Paul, the perfectly calm spiritual man who feels absolutely assured of his heavenly paradise to come, we see Paul, an anguished man in despair, who has realized that he cannot save himself by works and rituals because of his constant inclination to, to sin. And so this brings me to my first main point. Our good works will never cover over our sin. Think about this statement for a moment. There isn't a single person listening to me speaking or anywhere in the world today that could honestly say, I have lived a perfectly upright and decent life. Maybe you think I'm being rather presumptuous by saying that. Maybe you think you have lived a perfect life, perhaps ignoring everything you may have done before the age of 10. Then let me ask you all a few questions. How many times have you disobeyed your parents in your life? How many times have you lied? When was the last time you felt jealous that someone else had something that you really wanted? Have you ever acted in a selfish manner in your life? Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours or gained something illegally, like downloading pirated music or movies? Have you ever committed adultery with your thoughts by lusting after someone not your spouse or by physically acting on your desires? I am yet to meet a person who could honestly say never to absolutely all of those questions. You may notice that a lot of people today would absolutely demand that those who break the laws of this country must be brought to justice. Yet, when it comes to bringing ourselves to the same justice, when we break this country's laws, like going over the speed limit, we try to cover it up or argue that we are still somehow completely innocent, or we cry out for mercy because we don't want to be punished. Furthermore, it's no good believing you can rob a bank and then donate all that money to, to a charity thinking you'll get no jail time and no punishment whatsoever 
because we all know that the judge in court will still sentence you to jail for robbing a bank. But being selfish or committing adultery isn't against the law of this country, you might be thinking, and you would be right. But they are against God's law, the way he wants us to live. So if we know that doing good works will not save us from judgment of our crimes in this country, how could any of us expect that God will not demand justice for breaking his laws? So let's go a step further than applying the laws of this land to ourselves. Are you willing to wholeheartedly apply God's law to yourself? Are you willing to accept that you have broken God's laws in your life and accept the full weight of his judgment? Thankfully, things don't have to end in such a gloomy manner. We read on to verse 25. Perhaps Paul has found the answer to his problem. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you remember who wrote this letter? This is Paul, the man who became famous for persecuting Christians. This is Paul, the once mighty religious man who thought he had the true connection to God for being one of God's chosen people and through his religious works. This statement Paul has made would be like Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist, going on live television today and announcing to the world that he loves Jesus. What on earth could this Jesus possibly have done to make the aching despair of Paul, the once proud and religious persecutor of Christians, completely turn around and start thanking Jesus? Paul had found something in what Jesus had done on that cross that even with his impeccable knowledge and spirituality, he had never understood before. And this brings me to my second point. Jesus has done something no other person could ever do. But what has Jesus done? This Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, not the boost your self-esteem Jesus of self-help books, not the car salesman in a white suit Jesus of television, this Jesus of the Bible lived the perfect life that we were meant to live, and he willingly suffered the full punishment we all deserve for our rejection of God. This one righteous man died so that we, the many unrighteous, may find salvation and be reconciled to God. We all need to recognize this, because without Jesus, we are all enemies of God, whether you want to accept that or not. To absolutely prove that this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, was the Savior, not our Savior, after suffering some of the most unthinkable torture, the most unbearable pain, the most unimaginable mental anguish, and finally, death itself, this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who is called the Christ, God's anointed one, was raised back to life on the third day and showed himself in full bodily form. Not, to, not just to a small bunch of terrified Jews who just saw their leader publicly executed, but to 500 people, as Paul himself writes in chapter 15 of his first letter to the Corinthian church. It is this same Jesus who had the power to change Paul's life right around 
And it is this same Jesus who saved Paul from the eternal consequences of his sin. Paul continues in verse 25. I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Here Paul gives a small summary of what he has already written in Romans 7 verses 13 to 20. And it quite candidly displays just how imperfect a Christian really is. There seems to be this pervasive misconception that we Christians are all somehow arrogant because of our trust in Jesus, or holier than anyone else. And I mean that in a looking down the nose at you sort of way. The problem is, this is an an illusion that infiltrates both non-Christian and Christian society alike. I'll give you a personal example. A few years ago, when I was a staunch atheist, I was having a theological argument with Anne, my Christian workmate at the time, who now also happens to be my wife. So while Anne and I are having our discussion, the receptionist's boyfriend, who also called himself a Christian, came up to us and directly in front of me asked Anne, so, have you converted the heathen yet? True story. I tell you right now, it is this sort of behavior from those who call themselves Christians that drives people even further away to their own destruction. Yes, the Bible is God's word. Yes, faith in Jesus is the only way for salvation. But that doesn't give us as Christians a license to go be full of pride and speak arrogantly about it to non-believers, especially if we're trying to give them the good news. No. The Bible paints a completely different picture of the Christian life. What Paul has written here in the second part of verse 25 quite distinctly tells us that not even Christians are completely free from the effects of sin. As Christians, in our minds, we want to follow God's rules. But we still end up rejecting God. We still break his commands. And we are still in constant, desperate need of God's forgiveness just as much as anyone else on this planet. So that brings me to my third main point. Sin is ingrained in our very nature. Classic example. You are told not to touch the red button. And almost every single time someone tells you that, there's something inside that makes you really feel like defying authority and hitting that red button just to see what would happen. You can't explain why you feel that way. You just do. That is how deep the effects of sin go. And we are the ones responsible for our thoughts and actions. But if sin is part of our very nature, how can we be held responsible, you may ask? Well, imagine being an alcoholic. An alcoholic can't stop compulsively drinking. They might think they're still drinking for recreational purposes, or it might have become a way to deal with their depression of life. Perhaps he or she may notice that this is not a healthy way to be living, but many will still continue to consume more and more alcohol, while the body slowly destroys itself from its effects. Now, who is responsible? Is it the, gov- is it the government, society's favorite scapegoat, or some other entity? No. 
the alcoholic is still responsible for every single action he or she makes. Whether there be any health problems that arise or legal punishments if they commit a crime. Some alcoholics do the right thing and seek professional aid to help them stop this destructive behavior. But is leaving alcoholism just as easy as throwing away every alcoholic drink in your house away? Absolutely not. Even while the alcoholic goes through the stages of rehabilitation, he or she would have to be constantly battling the urge to run back to the very substance that was killing them in the first place, just because of the severity of the addiction. So it is with sin and humanity. Sin, the very essence of rejecting God, is so ingrained in the very nature of every human being. We are so addicted to sin that we usually do not see or even completely ignore its end consequences. And like the alcoholic, we keep running back to it. It does not matter whether you call yourself a profound atheist or bright, as one famous author likes to call them, the Pope, a grand ayatollah, a reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, or even a Christian. The fact remains that God, the creator of the universe, still exists, and all of us have rejected him at some point in our lives and continue to do so on a daily basis. And like the end result of alcoholism, there are very serious consequences that arise from our sinful thoughts and actions. But not only in this life, but in the eternal to come. Perhaps you may ask, but isn't God meant to be all loving and all compassionate? What kind of a loving God would ever send people to hell? Well, if you wish to actually hear an answer to that question, I think a change of attitude is needed. This is a concept that all of us need to remember. We rejected God, and God owes us nothing. We humans have no qualms about determining that all murderers, rapists, and corrupt politicians are certainly going to hell because they broke our laws of righteousness and we are somehow nicer than they are. But what about God's laws? What about the way he wants us to live? Everything changes when you try to look at your, your own life from God's perspective. God is not the soft and fluffy cosmic teddy bear tarot card dealing deity you find in New Age spiritual shops with logos with things like the image of Buddha superimposed on a crucifix. For anyone who honestly does not know, the crucifix, the same cross Jesus was nailed to, was an ancient device used for the slow, torturous death of criminals that the Romans wanted to make a public example of. People who were crucified died not because they had nails driven through some of the most sensitive nerve centers of the body, but because they were not able to breathe due to the way they hung on the cross. You must understand, the cross that you keep seeing on Christian buildings or books, etc., is not some hyper-spiritual symbol of oneness with heavenly beings, and certainly not some holy symbol that should be worshipped or has some sort of inherent power to bless people or objects if you say some magic words and then touch them with a cross. 
It's a reminder of the agonizing death that Jesus the Savior was put through for you and for me. So this brings us to the apex of the passage we are looking today, and arguably my favorite passage in the whole Bible. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, let me just stop there to take a few moments to explain this one, one word, therefore. Because in this sentence, it has a profound meaning. The word therefore is used at the beginning of this new sentence because God is perfect and has laid down a perfect law. Because we as humans are chained to our inherent sinfulness to break God's law constantly. Because we are eternally damned for our sinful actions. And because God gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what does in Christ Jesus mean? It's sort of like saying in union with Jesus or saying trusting Jesus solely as your savior. So does that mean that it is only Paul who is saved? Or maybe Paul and perhaps his band of elite priests high up in the mountains and the bunch of people in Rome who he's writing to? No. This one sentence that Paul has written, Romans 8 verse 1, is so very absolutely clear that salvation is not for a very small group of elite people, but it is for everyone. All who have faith in Jesus as their Savior are truly saved. Your good works play no part in your salvation. And that is why Romans 8 verse 1 doesn't say, there is no condemnation for those who do good works and special rituals and also are in Christ Jesus. Yes, you do good works as a Christian, but it is because you have been saved, not to become saved. So if you're a Christian listening to this message today, you might be thinking about how does all of what I've said even relate to you? Well, I think there are a number of ways today's message could relate. Perhaps you could start by asking yourself whether you truly are trusting only in Jesus for salvation and not a church building or any of the good works that God expects you to do. Look at your life and think about whether you really are living in a way that God would commend you for. Do you live like a Sunday Christian, living a life of gossip or selfishness, selfishness and indulgence throughout the week, and then coming to church on Sunday in an attempt to make it all up to God? If this is you, then remember that you were rescued at the price of Jesus' blood on the cross. Stop continually running back to sin just because it feels good and you don't want to give it up. Look at your life and be remorseful for your sinful ways and ask Jesus for forgiveness. Because it is an extremely serious thing when you have no problems with the sin in your life. And by that I mean, if you call yourself a, a Christian and truly have no problems with things like committing adultery, lying, stealing, going out and getting drunk, selfishness, constantly using filthy language, and continually rejecting God without any sort of guilt, then I really would say that you are treading a very fine line. 
And I would seriously begin questioning whether or not you are actually saved. Like the quote, on the, like the quote I found on the internet says, going to church doesn't make you any more a Christian than going to the garage makes you a car. Think about that one. <laughs> but, if you are, but if you call yourself a Christian and find that your heart is constantly being torn apart because you see all the sin in your life and you can't stop, even though you genuinely want to live God's way, then remember what Paul has written here in these verses we have looked at today. I know what it's like. I've been there. Even Paul had the same problem. And he was a man that spread the message of the gospel of Jesus from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. You are right in believing that you don't deserve to be saved because of all the sin in your life. But out of God's love, you have been. And that is what makes Jesus so unbelievably magnificent. Fear not, for God has declared, you, declared that you are no longer condemned for your sins. It really is amazing. God knows you are a sinner. And because you have trusted in Jesus to take your punishment, there is nothing that can separate you from his love. I encourage you to keep on asking God for forgiveness and strength to overcome the sin in your life. Keep begging God to help you resist Satan's temptations. And remember that you can ask God to give you comfort. You truly are God's child and he loves you. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a verse that has gotten me through some of the most spiritually depressing moments I've had since becoming a Christian. And I tell you, it can also bring you great solace if you remember it as well. But if you are not a Christian here this morning, then there is much for you to consider. If the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning in union with Jesus, then the opposite is also true. There is still full condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus, who do not trust in him as their savior alone. And if that is you right now, then do not delay. Take up this free gift from God and give your sin to Jesus. Repent and turn away from your sinful life and ask Jesus for forgiveness. Because I tell you now, you are not as safe and invincible as you think you are. And one day, death will overtake you. Please do not gamble eternity on atheism or false religions and New Age spirituality in the hopes that somehow God will either just vanish or forget your actions in your life because you have been nice to people. God is a just God, and he will demand full justice. Grab hold of the one who really did complete the work of salvation for the many and put your trust in Jesus as your savior today. There are no secret phrases that must be said to receive this gift, no special things to concentrate your mind on, and there is no sacred ritual to perform. Just say you are truly sorry to God from the heart and pledge yourself to follow Jesus. Let us speak with him now. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, those who are here today, uh, 
I pray that you uh, give us a mind uh, to glorify you and to uh, break our stubbornness and uh, our constant love for sin. And I pray that you also help us and replace our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh so that we may recognize that Jesus is our Savior and that we may glorify you the way we should. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.